Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Alvin, lead pastor here at Nashville Life. I've been serving in this role for uh, seven months now, I think. So, yeah, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I still have a smile on my face, and it's a real smile, believe it or not. It's a real one. Um, I want to honor our founding pastors who were pastoring before me, Pastor Love and Cece, mom and dad for me. But, um, y'all, they're great, and I'm just so appreciative of their support, um, and I'm appreciative of y'all's support. This is a great church, great church, and uh, I can say that because it's still too soon for me to, like, take any credit for it. Like, I've just been a member of this church for nine years, so I can say this is a great, great church. Uh, before we get into the word, I would like to do our pre-word declaration, and then I'm going to talk a bit. Um, repeat these words after me. Say, the word of God is the bread of life. Say, may my heart conceive it and my life achieve it. The more I give life, the more I'll receive. And then say, the more I live life, the more I'll believe. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Okay, so for the month of August, we're starting a new series, and I'm calling it Work It Out. Work It Out is the name of the series for August. We have five weeks to cover how to work it out. Um, I am calling it Work It Out because I believe, first of all, we're fasting for the, and praying for the majority of this month, and... August 8th, we launch a 21 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, we're fasting just three, uh, three Wednesdays during those 21 days. So we're not fasting the entire time, at least corporately. You can if you would like to, but we're only asking for the church to fast until 6 p.m. during those Wednesdays of the 21 days. And there's a scripture that I want to cover next week about fasting. It's in Isaiah about the fasting that the Lord calls for. And it's a fast that actually blesses other people. Oftentimes, when it comes to prayer, honestly, when it comes to our spiritual life, it can become very inward, and it can become very uh, self-absorbed, and even if it means well, it can become very much about us and very much about our issues, but salvation really is meant to be a blessing to other people. Our blessings and what God is doing in us is supposed to reach uh, outside of us so it can build God's kingdom, so it can glorify God and ultimately draw more people to Jesus. Um, so I believe our church might be a little bit deep in thought at the moment, deep in their feelings at the moment, even deep in prayer at the moment. And, and while those things are okay, if we don't learn how to get these things on the inside out, we're going to defeat the purpose of all the work that God is doing in us. So I'm going, to pre I'm going to preach from one passage today that I think is going to really bless us. But I also want to say before the passage, um, August 8th, we're going to launch it in a great way. We're launching these 21 days off with a Sunday of water baptisms. And I can't wait. And I think it's so appropriate because that's what water baptism is. It's taking what God has done inside of you and demonstrating it in an outward manner. So I think it's very appropriate that we're starting this 
fast that's in this prayer time that's emphasizing the external with water baptism. So you heard how to get involved if you want to be baptized. We'll have a team to water baptize you. And we're trying something different this time because a lot of times we uh, aren't the best at planning to do things. And when the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and when we're in the moment and the presence of God is here, a lot of times people feel motivated to get baptized on the day of. So we actually have um, clothes and baptism t-shirts and uh, items that's going to be able to accommodate those who come on the spot next week and want to get baptized. So though we would love for you to register so we can plan, even if you don't, we got you. So that's going to be August the 8th, this coming Sunday, and I can't wait for water baptisms. Um, The passage I want to read from and I'm going to pretty much stay within this passage. I'm going to go verse by verse and kind of break it down. I'm a little bit intimidated because it's so much content. And it's not even that long of a verse or a passage, but it's so potent and so rich with revelation that I can't even touch the surface in a service. But I'm going to try to at least chip at it and see what we can kind of feed off of for, from this passage. It's in uh, the book of Philippians. And this is a book where Paul is writing to the church in in, uh, Philippi and the Philippian church. And it is verse 2, no, it's chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 12 through 15. It says, therefore, my beloved, this is uh, Paul speaking, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, uh, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Um, So that's the text I'm going to be using today, and I highly recommend you read this throughout the week, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start with the first part. Verse 12, it ends with saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And my question that I want to address to us today is how do you work out your salvation. How do you do that? Before I address that, I want to first make sure that we don't, I'm not assuming that everybody knows what salvation is, because we can talk about how to work it out, but let's first cover what salvation is. Salvation, first of all, it's a gift, and I'm going to talk about how we have it, and then I'll talk about what it actually is. We get salvation because God the Father purchased it for us. He purchased salvation because of the sin issue in our life and because of the law, salvation had to be purchased. And God was the one who was rich enough to afford to pay for this salvation because it had a very high price. And his payment was his son, Jesus. And Jesus' life and his blood shed on the cross was the payment for our salvation. And the Holy Spirit, he was there to really administer 
the, the, the whole transaction. He was sort of the runner that allowed the process to happen. So they perfectly work together, and that's how we have what we call salvation. Um, but what is salvation? Uh, there's a passage in Ezekiel that really sums it up that I love, and I think it's a great reference that sums up what it is that we receive when Jesus died on the cross. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, all of it, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see how much God is saying he's doing and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and and I'm going to give you this and on top of that I'm going to give you this and then I'm, and I'm going to, I mean that's why we call it a gift because God is giving us so much in this package that we call salvation. But by and large, the majority of everything I've talked about just now was an internal work, an internal work. Things like a new heart, that's an internal work. A new spirit, that's an internal work that says I will cause you in the internal work. And that's the majority of really our salvation. There's so much emphasis on what's happening on the inside. I think we all pretty much know that even outside of Christianity People would support the fact that it's what the in, what's on the inside that counts and the inside is the most valuable. That's something that's pretty common knowledge, and that's true on salvation. There's a major emphasis on the internal work that happens by the power of God. At the same time, for us to really extract salvation in its fullness, not just the partial part of it, but the fullness of salvation, you see that the last part of what I just read says, I will put my spirit in you, verse 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So though there is a great emphasis on the internal work, the new heart, the new mind, the new spirit, cleaning out your insides, setting you free from all the internal bondage and the anxiety and the fears and the traumas and the nightmares, all the things that hold us bound, all of that internal work happens so that we can then do some external stuff, which is walking, which is obedience. These are actions that the internal work allows possible. So though salvation is... Uh, hugely internal, it is also meant for an external work to begin. And that's why we're spending five weeks on talking about how to get the internal work outside of you, how to transition from an internal work that God has done and doing the work that it takes to take that internal work to an external work. Because it's not until we reach the external part of our salvation that other people can be blessed. It's not until we reach the part that's outside of us that people can see the glory of God and come to Jesus as a byproduct of that. Does that make sense? So we're talking about work it out. So the first 
part, verse 12, was work out your salvation. Let's go to the next verse of that Philippians. It says, uh, for it is God who works in you, which I just said, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I'm going to repeat myself, not to be redundant, but for clarity's sake. God's power does an internal work in every single person who chooses Jesus. Every single person who places their faith in Jesus, there's a deep, supernatural, internal work that happens. And that work does two things. It is to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what the internal work is doing. To will is an internal situation. And then to work is an external situation. The will is the part of you that makes it possible for you to do anything. None of us do anything unless we are first willing to do it. Um, you can't sin without a will to sin. You can't lie without a will to lie. You can't obey without a will to obey. You can't serve without a will to serve. If, will, a will to your action is like what a starter is to a car. Like, no action can happen unless you are first, at the bare minimum, willing to do it. And the cool thing about the power of God is he says, because I know that, because God knows that it takes our will for us to do anything, he does a power, he does a work that, that engages our will. He changes, he gives us the will. Because the thing about a will is the will allows you to do things that without that will you never would have done. When you become a Christian and when you experience the power of God, you are now miraculously willing to do things that prior to Jesus you were not willing to do. When God engages your will, now all of a sudden you have a will to forgive where before Jesus there was no will to forgive that person for what they did for you. So, so he, he gives you this enablement, this willingness to Make decisions that without that will being changed, you never would have done it. So that's the first thing. That's, where, that's why it says to will. But even that's internal. A will is that internal decision before the external thing happens. Um, and then the second thing, of course, is to work. And to work is external. That is the action. That's the first time that everything that's happening on the inside of you works its way out. And I, it's called work for a reason. Um, it is work to, to follow the Lord, um, which is why so few people do it. Um, it takes, and what I just said was biblical. Jesus said fewer people follow me than don't. And the reason why is not because, I mean, it's, it's, it's work. He actually said it's more difficult to obey, to, for, God, for us to obey God than for us not to obey God. Um, there's a reason why it doesn't say cruise out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a reason why it doesn't say ease out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a reason why it doesn't say ooze out your salvation with, with fear and trembling. It takes work. It takes work to yield your will on a daily basis and exchange your will for his will and not only that, but have a strong enough will from him to actually do his will. It takes work. It takes so much work, and I'm not trying to be discouraging, but Jesus said few will do it compared to the ones who don't. 
because it's, he, I mean, I'm just repeating his words. He says it's easier to live in destruction than it is to find the path of righteousness. Why? Because of that word right there, that W word that none of us like, and that is work, including me. <laughs> Which brings me to the next part. Not only are we working, but verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. God is one of those parents. He's one of those parents that don't even, that don't just say do what I'm telling you to do, but do it with the right attitude. Like, some of y'all didn't have that parent. I happen to have that parent. Some of you guys didn't have that parent. God, but you do now. You do now. He's the captain now. That movie. Um, <laughs> You have a God that not only expects for you to do what he's telling you to do, but he wants you to do it with a positive attitude, without grumbling or disputing. And yes, I know this is an order and this is a standard that I don't know if any of us are passing with flying colors, but that's why we're here. That's why we're here, so the character of God can grow in our lives and we become more like Jesus than who we've been the past X amount of years. Without grumbling or disputing, i got to stick on this for a bit because I'm dealing with a 2021 audience here. And when we hear do things without grumbling or disputing, there's a tendency in all of us to want to jump to the extreme where we feel that we are just suffocating. You're putting me in a straitjacket. You're putting a muzzle over my face. I can't, I just, I feel like I'm about to implode. Um, this is America. Like all, the, like we we just don't we don't like anyone telling us what to do, especially when it comes to what we say. There's no part of us that gets more mad about restriction than our tongue, and this is biblical. The Bible says the tongue is the most unruly part of who you are. There is not a single part in your body that is more resistant to restrictions than this. So when you hear. Do not grumble or dispute. Something rises up in us for the most part because that's the part of us that's the most unruly that God is coming for. And he says for us to do things. And, and we jump to these conclusions. Well, what about if this? And what about this? And, like, are you saying that we can't think for it? You can't, like, we just go to this, like, ultimate oppressive kind of state when we see scriptures like this because we jump to this conclusion as if we just, I'm no longer free anymore. And we kind of, like, have a tantrum internally and sometimes for some of us externally. Um, but I want to explain to you guys what, what, we're, not, what we're not saying here. Um, Jesus says that he saves us to do a work for his pleasure. Now, will we enjoy it along the way? Yes. But is that his primary obligation? No. And you have to understand that there's someone who can love you, but your pleasure is still not their primary obligation. If that is a hard pill for you to swallow, then you're going to struggle with God because he has called you and he saved you to do works for the things that he wants. And if you happen to like it too, awesome, but he's not losing sleep over it. Again, this is very new for us depending on how we grew up. This is very new to have a father who loves us, but is calling us to do things for his pleasure above our own. Now, a wise person realizes that when God is pleased, we're pleased. 
A wise person realizes when I live my life according to what makes him happy, I will, as a byproduct, be happy. But notice I said as a byproduct. For us, happiness is prime. If God is happy, that's a byproduct. We rather a salvation where we have happiness, and if God happens to be happy too, that's cool. Other than I want God to be happy, and if I get what I want, that's a bonus. We want salvation where God's happiness is the bonus, opposed to our happiness being the bonus, which is just classic selfishness. It's okay. It's normal. It's human. It's very normal for us to put our desires first. The only issue is that when we want to become, when we want to start following Jesus and take that desire with us, it's okay to realize that that's there, that we have desires that sometimes and oftentimes conflict with God's desires. That's just called being real. But when we try to still follow God with that priority in mind, there's going to be, or that priorities, with our priorities in that way where our happiness comes first, there's going to be problems. Um, because God refuses to compete with us. Just look in the Bible. Any single person who tried to contend and compete with God regretted it. God is not afraid to show you who's boss. He loves us, but he's not afraid of us. He's not afraid of us. So when we have we realize that our life is for his pleasure. That's why God, that's why the word says that's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom, realizing that he is first. You can't even think about happiness until you first swallow that pill that what he wants is the most important. And that's actually the beginning, ironically, of your happiness. It's very counterintuitive. We're not free until we relinquish our freedom to the Lord. We're not happy until we surrender our happiness to the Lord. It's very different than how we do things person to person. But God is not like us. He's God. He's not just some dude. Without grumbling. Now, grumbling doesn't mean that you're not allowed to not like something. Now, that's bondage. Like... That's why I think it's good for us to get out the way that God's pleasure isn't necessarily lined up with mine. Like, that's okay. That's actually, that's not Christian. That's not not Christian for you to admit that some of the things that God wants you to do, you don't like. Yeah. I think we got to kind of just break through that. Like, that. don't be afraid to admit that you're not crazy about all of God's counsel. You're not crazy about all of his instructions. You're not crazy about every single thing that he wants you to do. There's no, there's no shame here, guys. Like, it's, we're safe. That's still within the bounds of knowing Jesus and following him. It only becomes a problem when we let that make us choose our desire over his, right? Choose what we like and prioritize what we like. That's when it becomes a problem. But, but. You're not going to like everything along this walk. Um, grumbling is not lying to yourself, saying that you like it even if you don't. Grumbling is expressing it in an unintentional way. And when I say unintentional, 
I mean in a way that is not proper, in a way that's not direct, in a way that's not biblical. Um, if you look in Scripture, there's a, there's a great allowance for conflict. There's a great allowance for I don't like that. There's a great, there's a great allowance for, for, for issues. I think we've got to realize that the Bible is not intimidated by conflict or, or, or are our desires clashing with his. Um, grumbling is connected to what we see the Israelites do in the wilderness, and that's a passive, um, aggressive way of expressing discontent or something that you don't like. I'll use the parent thing again. So let's say someone says, you know, a dad says, Johnny, go take out the trash. And, like, you go take out the trash, but you hear, and it's like, wait, what did you say? That's grumbling. Grumbling is I'm going to make, I'm going to express it, but in a way where it's indirect, it's passive, and it's underneath my breath. I want to express it in a way where I can still express it, but I don't have to suffer the consequence for what I say. It's this hidden expression of what, that's what passive aggressive, passive aggressive is to communicate the same things, but without the, without the consequences of saying it directly or really saying what you mean. You have, it's very witchcrafty. It's very, it's really, it's really uh, spelly. It's like hidden stuff. Like, let me get what I want with doing it in a hidden way. Let me, let me express disrespect or discontent in a way where I don't have to answer for it, which brings me to what I call side conversations. Side conversations, the reason why I call side conversations Side conversations is when you are communicating a dislike or an area of discontent to a person aside from the one who's supposed to hear it. If you want to know how Alvin and Nashville Life decides, defines side conversations, it's expressing a dislike or an area of discontent to someone aside from the person who's supposed to hear it. Murmuring basically says I'm, that whole word is is uh, comes from this idea of saying it, but in a way where no one can really hear it. So I'm saying it, but I'm doing it like this, so no one can really. But you're saying it, but you're doing it in a way where it can't be clear and it can't be addressed. You're doing it in a way where you're still able to say something negative, but saying it in a way that is not productive and not intentional so that a solution can come. That's, that's what the word grumbling is. Grumbling is this internal kind of passive side, vague kind of way of expressing dislikes. And it ends up, instead of going to the person it's supposed to go to, it ends up planting cancerous seeds um, in the camp. It, guys, as, as much as we don't think, as much as we underestimate it, it literally robbed an entire generation from the promised land. Guys, they did not not make the promise because they were murdering each other or that they were doing all these bad things. They were doing these side murmurings and grumblings over things they weren't happy about. And God's not saying you got to be happy about everything I'm telling you, but like basically say it to my face. Go to the Lord in prayer. Say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. I don't want to do this. But so few of us have the guts to actually say, God, 
I don't like this. I'm struggling with this. Minister to me. Help me because I don't. Instead, we don't talk to God, but we talk to that friend and we talk to that person or, same, or even with each other. We don't have the guts to say, hey, Joe, I don't, I don't like this. Instead, we go, hey, Karen, come over here. Hey, Susan, come over here. Hey, whatever name, come over here. Uh, you know, Joe, God's really dealing with me about Joe. And we know how to make it really churchy. Because if we say God is, and it's like, oh, cool. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a deceptive area. And us guys, it's, it's destroying communities all over the world. It's destroying marriages all over the world. It's destroying church membership all over the world. Not because they're, you know, building up statues of Satan and bowing down to it. Those are the things that's ruining the church. It's, hey, I need to talk to you. Um, and then we end up expressing negative things about other people instead of dealing with it the way Jesus says to deal with it. So, so Paul says, don't do that. Don't grumble. Second thing he says is no disputing. And that can make some other people really like, well, does that mean I can't disagree? Does that mean I can't think something different? No. Keyword, disputing is when you take, let's say, because all of us have different ideas. All of us have different thoughts. All of us have different methods. All of us have different preferences. And the key word is different. As long as we acknowledge that we have different, different ways of thinking, different ways of interpreting, different ways, we're good. Disputing becomes disputing when different becomes swapped out with better. It's one thing to say, I would do it differently. That's fair game. That's inevitable. If I gave any of you guys the next two weeks to run Nashville Life for two weeks, it would be very different than how, I, how the next two weeks are going to be under my leadership. And I'm not afraid of that. That's fine. Like, we're all different. But the issue disputing is when instead of it, it being different, it's better. You can't dispute without some sort of judgment involved. Disputing is this way is better than what you are doing. This way is this way is better than how you're thinking. This perspective is better. And this this disputing can happen with leadership, it can happen with each other, it can happen with spouses, it can happen with uh, employees and employers. Like when when it comes to disputing as long as you can acknowledge that your idea is a different idea, you're fine. So, so disputing does not mean that you can't have different ideas. Disputing is birthed when instead of a different idea, it's a better idea. And then, because now it's a judgment call, and you're not able to express a different opinion without, uh, without disputing the other persons. And for whatever reason... God doesn't want us doing that. He doesn't want us doing that. Now, if you don't know how to do that, then that's when you pray and ask God for other scriptures on how to, to avoid uh, disputing. Um, it is, it is uh, I'll put it this way. I'll use my own story. Like, I am very different than my parents. And I've had different ideas, honestly, since the very beginning of our church and a lot of the things have been done. 
And as long as they were different ideas that I would bring to them, I was fine. I didn't get in trouble with God until my different was replaced with better. Because now, because it's better, that ends up getting, giving birth to I know better than them. I'm more spiritual than them. I hear God more directly than them. And all of a sudden, that's what starts to sever the relationship. That's what starts to put me into a witchcrafty state. That's what starts to put me in a rebellious state. Because, and reason why, the reason why it's witchcraft is because we think in a carnal way, first of all, we're carnal. So we don't, we don't see things the way they are in the spirit. And we judge things based off what things are to surface value, to the naked eye. And we think this is just an issue between me and my dad or me and my mom or me and, you know, a person to person. But when I slip into disputing, then what I don't realize I'm doing and the deception of disputing is now I am insulting God because basically God made the wrong call. God put the wrong person in charge. So by me disputing my father, I'm actually insulting God's judgment. And we think we're deceived and we think this is a person-to-person conflict. But when it comes to uh, even relationships with other people, like when we dispute another person or we put another person down, the reason why it's an insult to God is because God created that person. So so let's take it out of leadership. Let's just put it person-to-person. But when we make judgments on people, then we're basically... uh, insulting what God is doing, the work of God, especially another believer. I mean, we're his workmanship. So when we place ourselves above and dispute and, and, and attack each other, we're attacking God's work. He takes it very personally. Talk to any parent here. You can say the best things to them, but if you insult and put down their kid, it's as if you were saying it to them. And I don't think we realize how connected God is to us. So when we dispute each other, when we tear each other down, God gets actually more offended than the person. I don't think we realize that. We think we're dealing with people to people, but we're messing with what God is doing. Again, we don't think this way, which is why it's important to sometimes obey even before necessarily understanding which, which takes humility because we we're not going to see all the angles that God sees things from. We don't have his vantage point. Sometimes you just got to trust him and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Guys, there's been so many times um, that I've had to just trust the bigger picture of what God is doing and follow the process. Guys, God, the Bible doesn't say that the Lord exalts the talented. It doesn't say he exalts the people with the best ideas. He doesn't say he, ta- he exalts the people with the greatest calling on their life. He said he exalts the humble. So there's been times where I've had an idea that I just knew it was the best idea. And who knows? Maybe it was. But that's irrelevant when it comes to being promoted by God. God could care less if you have the best idea. If you aren't the most humble, you will get, you will get passed over. 
The reason why I'm in this position today is not because I had the best ideas, but during the times where I was convinced I had the best ideas, I yielded in humility, and that's what impressed God even more than the idea that he gave me. Again, guys, it's a different plane. Some of you young guys need to get this because you're tripping yourself up. There's a greater plane happening here. There's a greater sphere that you know nothing about. And here we are thinking that this is how it works, but God goes, I'm looking for a complete different thing. You have to trust it. You have to trust that that is what, and let's talk about this bigger picture. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he tells the reason in the next part. The next part is the reason why he says to do this. That you may be blameless and innocent. Basically, it doesn't matter how wrong the other person is. If you grumble and dispute about it, you are now in the same category as the same person that you're upset with. The Lord is trying to protect us from being in the blame. He wants us to be blameless. He's rooting for us to be blameless. But when we grumble about something, no matter how justifiable we feel about grumbling about it, or we would dispute about something, no matter how convinced we are that we're right, we we forfeit being blameless. We are to blame if we grumble and dispute. No matter what the circumstance is. No matter what the circumstance If we grumble or dispute, we are to blame. So that's why he says, do all things without it. All things without it so that you may be blameless and innocent. And there's even a purpose to that because God just doesn't want just a, 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 a museum of blameless, innocent people. There's a purpose even to that. Children of God without blemish, now we get to the big picture that we, don't all, that we usually don't think about. 98% of the people in this room rarely think about the scope this large. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In church, guys, we get so nearsighted and we look at our world as if it's church. So we look at our world as if it's just each other that we're dealing with. We compare ourselves to each other, but we don't realize the reason why God is trying to get us to act so differently is so that we can stand out in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. There's a reason why the things I'm telling to you sound crazy. And I know it. There's a reason why this sounds so different. Because, guys, we are Christians handling our lives the same way that people who aren't Christians handle it. And it's causing us not to stand out. It's causing us to look just like everybody else. And we think because we're at church and because we're not wearing provocative clothing and because that we are listening to worship in the way to car, that we're standing out. But in the spirit, we look just like anybody else who doesn't have Jesus because we refuse to do things the way the word says it because we can't relinquish the way that makes sense to us, which is literally what sinners do. Sinners do what make every sinner that you know is doing what makes sense to them. Every non-believer, every heathen is doing what makes sense to them. They're not going, I'm following the devil. No, they're, they're, doing, they're doing what makes sense to them. 
we're missing out the very thing that separates us from the world. The world does what makes sense to them. They lean on their own understandings because that's all they have. So then we receive Jesus, we receive the counsel of God, we receive a different instructions, and yet we still lean on our own understanding, so therefore the byproduct of our lives look exactly the same as someone who says God is dead. When we lean on our own understandings and what makes sense to us, we are no different than any other heathen out there. Trust me. It's the, it's the, the fruit of human wisdom. So I understand that it sounds weird to say do everything without grumbling and disputing. But if that's what it takes to stand out in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and this is where judgment from God can actually come because this is what tests if you care about the crooked and twisted generation. Ultimately, the reason why God is going to be justified in um, judging is because ultimately, next to loving him, the second thing is to love other people. And if we don't have enough love for other people that we're willing to put ourselves through the ringer and change the way we live so that the twisted and crooked generation can see an example of who God is and know Jesus, then we will be charged for not loving people. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Next part, among whom... This is why God is so good, because usually when we say twisted and crooked generation, we say it as like a stone throwing. Man, those guys are twisted. Oh, they're so stupid, all those sinners. And God, his heart all along is among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay, guys, please hear me out. I'm not, if I'm not explaining things, but I'll talk to you all after, but like, but, like, I will. I really do. I love explaining myself if I need to. Um, God loves the twisted and crooked generation. And the light that he's talking about is for their benefit so that they can see the way to him. But the very people that he's calling to be the servants for the twisted, crooked generation are determined to stay crooked and twisted. And I say determined. You can't have the power of God living inside of you and still continue to be twisted and crooked without determination. There is a stubborn will within the saints and we're unwilling to totally lay it out, to relinquish all my understandings, 
that Paul, Paul guys said, I knew all of this stuff, and I've, I've, I counted rubbish. Most of us aren't willing to count everything about our lives aside from Jesus as rubbish. There's a, there, is a, there is a surrender that's needed. And, and the reason why God is asking you to do it, not because he's mean, not because he wants to ruin your life, but that's the only thing that's going to make you be the light the God-given light, not the light that we can manufacture ourselves, not the light that the devil does where he disguises himself as an angel of light, the God-ordained supernatural light that can pierce the darkness. God doesn't want some manufactured light. The only light that he provides is one that comes with saying, even though I want to grumble or dispute and I feel like I have every right according to my own understandings to do it, I'm just going to... This feels so awkward. This feels so weird. This feels, every bone in my body is upset, but I'm going to go with this because if I don't go through this threshold, I won't be a light, and the twisted and cricket generation will never be able to see Jesus. This is why I say so few of us are thinking like this because your love for God plays a part, but now we're seeing that your love for people has to play a part. It's your love for the twisted and cricket generation that motivates you to go through the difficulty of not doing things your way, not so that you can be fulfilled. And I'm learning that's most of our motivation, let's be honest. Most of us want to be free so that we are no longer oppressed anymore and we want to be free and like we're tired of the weights and we're tired of the bondage and we're tired of it and we're frustrated. But ultimately, as awesome as that sounds, that's still more of a, I want to be free so that I can enjoy my life better. But I'm telling you guys, the most success I've had as a Christian is when my motivation for being free is so that others can know about him. I've done both. I've done both. I've tried to live free so that I can find the relief that comes with being free. And I've, and I've tried to live free so that the twisted and crooked generation can know about Jesus. I've done both. It's night and day. Because ultimately, when our motivation is so that we can be fulfilled, we're like, well, I mean, I've made it this long, and I'll just keep on being bound because ultimately it's just me who's suffering. And the enemy wants you to think that as long as you're disobedient, you're the only person who's suffering. The enemy doesn't you to realize that the, that, that the cause, the byproduct of your disobedience is actually causing generations to suffer. He doesn't want you thinking about your son. He doesn't want you thinking about your future grandkids. He doesn't want you thinking about your neighbor that's going to hell. He wants you to think that the only person who's going to suffer if you stay disobedient is you. Because as long as you're the only person who's paying for your mistake, you're willing to do it. Most of us are self-loathing anyway. So when we're the only people who's suffering, we're fine. And it's deception. But if you only had a clue of how many people are suffering because you're disobedient, it would change your life. It would change your life. If you saw the faces of people going to hell because of your disobedience, if you saw the faces of people going to hell because of your disobedience, it would change. It would be such a deeper conviction you will reach from such a deeper well for loving God and obeying him than, I mean, I guess it's another week of stress for me. 
And as long as, we, as long as the devil can convince us that we're the only people who are suffering when we sin and when we live in disobedience, he's got us. But the minute our eyes open up that our obedience makes us a light for this twisted and cricket generation, we realize that other people are waiting for us to be obedient. Other people are waiting for us to be obedient. It will change our lives. So the word for today is work it out. Work it out because it being something that's only just good for you is not good enough anymore. You cannot have a salvation where you're the only person who's enjoying it. If your salvation isn't being lived out in a way where other people are enjoying your salvation, you're not doing salvation right. You are not doing it right. If you're the only beneficiary of your salvation, you're not doing it right. It is not until it gets worked outside of you and it becomes an external manifestation that other people will see the glory of God, glorify your Father, and get saved. It's very different than the way we do it. I'm talking to myself. But guys, if we don't work it out, the world will never know. If we don't work it out, the world will never see they will never hear. They will never feel the embrace of God unless it's through you. And what's scary is God holds you accountable. I don't want fear to be the motivation, but he literally holds you accountable. Not because you're perfect, but because what you carry, what, because of the work that he knows he did inside of you. He knows the chains that he broke inside your heart. He knows it. He saw it. But if you're not willing to do the work to get that miracle that was inside of you, outside of you, you're missing the whole objective of why God did all that work. He did all that work. Thank you, Jesus. Matthew 5. Perfect ending. 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Thank you, God. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and but on a stand. And it, meaning you, the light of the world, it is you in this equation, in this passage. It which is you, gives light to all in the house. The theme of this year is I'm a life giver. Not just a life taker, a life sucker, a life giver. Stop just taking the life out of stuff. Give it. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before who? Guys, it is, I mean, I'm all about audience of one, but goodness it needs to be for people to see. If God is the only person who's seeing it, then, like, you don't have to leave your house. Just stay at your apartment all day. The reason why he calls you to leave your apartment is so people besides him can see it. So that who might see your good works? They. So that they may see your good works. 
God actually cares about others seeing you. But if it's still inside and never gets out, they can't see it. So when they see your good works, then they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the full picture of the plan, guys. We cut off that second part. It's like, cool, I'm free. I guess that's salvation. And the thing about it is, is that person gets bored. Selfishness is bored, boring. It's, it's deceptive because we think we love it, but we hate selfishness. The most selfish people in this room are the ones who are actually the most unhappy with their lives. Just be honest. Selfishness is boring. Selfishness, it's a dead end. Because it's yourself. It's just, it stops with you. It's not even natural. There's no river. Life becomes fulfilling when you realize that you are the giver of the light. You are the, the, the passer of the blessing. You are the one who multiplies and, and sows and reaps. That's when your life becomes fulfilling. Guys, the enemy has deceived you to thinking that you want what you actually hate. We hate selfishness. I know we think we love it. But we hate it. The most, when we're selfish, that's when we're the most lonely. That's when we're the most discontent. That's when we're the most depressed. So we're going to work it out. That was the intro. We're going to work it out. We're going to work it out with fear and trembling. And the reason why it's fear and trembling is not because you're scared. Again, guys, trees don't, don't get triggered. Like, fear and trembling, we're not saying be scared. We're saying do it carefully because other people's salvation is dependent on how well you work out yours. Again, if the salvation is only about you, you I drive different than if I have people in the car. Especially babies. I'm like driving 30 miles an hour. Because we, when, we, when we know that other people are attached to it, we live our lives differently. My house looks different when I have guests coming over than if I don't. Because when other people are involved, it causes us to act differently. The same goes for our salvation. If our salvation is still ultimately only about us, we're going to treat it like trash. But if it's about others and the way that we steward this thing in a way where other people can be able to get it and, and they're okay, we're going to treat it delicately. Our salvation is delicate. It's precious. I got people in the car. Too many of us are driving with nobody else in the car or as if no one is in the car. So I'm going to ask us to stand because there's a basket that basket that Jesus talked about that's over our lamp, your question tonight, today, is what is my basket? What is my basket? What is the thing that is standing over my lamp that is diminishing my light from people seeing it? What is your basket? He says, when the lamp is covered by the basket, it does no good for anybody. They can't see the beautiful light. The cool thing about it is I actually believe that y'all have a beautiful light inside of you. Like, I actually believe that a large amount of this church actually has the light of God inside of them. So I'm not even condemning anybody. I'm saying, what's that basket <laughs> that you keep over it? 
what is the stuff in your life? What is the mindset? What is the practice? What, are, what is the community? What is the approach? What is the whatever that is preventing the light of Jesus that is inside of you from getting out? And my prayer is that this month the Lord reveals it so that by the end, some of us aren't, don't need the light. You need to get rid of the basket. So this, for, for most of if you if you, if you believe in Jesus, I actually believe the scripture. You have the light. But the issue is that it's not doing anybody any good <laughs> if you keep a basket over it. So that's my prayer. Lord, what is that basket? What is that bushel? What is that, what is that thing that is diminishing my light from being effective to other people when I leave the house? Father, my prayer today is that you would continue to work in our hearts and, and widen our lens. Lord, on behalf of everybody here, I confess, Lord, that we've gotten self-absorbed with our salvation. And we've let our advancement and our progression be the motivation to why we, why we follow you. And many of us have either been blindsided, we've forgotten, or maybe today we've never heard before today that our salvation is actually intended for the crooked and twisted and lost generation who are bound and looking for the way home. There are thousands in our, in our individual lives who are looking for the way home. But Lord, the enemy has distracted us or cause us to forget that, that we are that light for them to get home. Father, I pray that your spirit would bring mercy and grace and clarity. And, and I pray, Lord, that when it happens, Lord, we humble ourselves and that we do what Scripture says it takes even if it conflicts, especially if it conflicts with our own understanding. Lord, because I believe our understanding actually has been the barrier. It's hard for us to take your word at face value because our understanding gets in the way, which is why Proverbs 3, you told us not to lean on those understandings. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves and do what it takes for us to have the light, not only in us, but from us. Lord, you're saying to this church, you are not satisfied with the light being only in us. But you want us to live a life in a way where others can see that light and find their way home. You are calling so many sons and daughters home. There's so many sons and daughters that you're calling home, but your lamps won't cooperate. Your lamps won't, your beacons won't cooperate. Lord, let us be beacons who cooperate. Let us be lamps that cooperate so that they can find their way home. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, before we close, 
I do want to offer anyone who's, re- who's tired of that twisted and cricket generation, who want to step outside of that and join, join the beacons. That's our last name. We're the beacons. We're the lights. If you're ready to join that, come on. Come on. My prayer is that the, 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 the light that God allowed me to show today and that the people, this team, the worship team, the music team, the welcome team, um, the uh, connect, all the different people here in this place, I pray that the light that you've seen is enough to say, okay, I can, I'm ready to come home. And if not, just know that for this next month, this church is committed to become a better light for you to be able to see. If the light, for everyone who doesn't believe and still don't after today, just keep coming. Give us a little time. We had some dysfunctions in our lights. There's some bushels and baskets that were over it. Give us some time to, to, to uh, work on this so that we can have a light that's strong enough to pierce the darkness in your life. We are committed. Nashville Life, are we committed? Are we committed to strengthen that light? Are we committed to get rid of the basket? But my prayer is that today, for someone, the light was bright enough for you to say, I want to come home. And if that's you, I'm going to lead you through a prayer to let Jesus into your heart and become a light and, and shine for the rest of people in your life. So repeat this after me. Say, say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. Forgive me of my sins and make me a new person in Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, I choose you to be the Lord of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so I can live for you every day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's celebrate salvation. Let's celebrate someone coming home. A son came home today. A daughter came home today. And there's a whole lot more that are coming. But they got to see. They can't walk in the dark.